What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is an entrepreneur and opportunist at heart. He has over 30 years of experience in the hospitality industry. His favorite part of the designing process is wowing the clients. He is the president and principal at SB Architects. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Lee. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. It, it's so good to have you on. Um, I wanted to share with our our guests, you know, so much about our industry is all, it's all relationship and you know, we like working with the people that we know, and if we could keep working with the people that we know or have a relationship with, or it just makes it all the more better as far as what we're trying to do in hospitality. And I've met you a few times over the year, over the years, but we share a really wonderful friend in common in, in uh, David Kennedy. And I just always, I remember him meeting or it meets him telling me about you and just always speaking so fondly about you. Um, and I'm just happy to have friends and friends of friends on here to just hear about your journey. So thank you for being a mutual friend. You're very welcome. Say hello to David. I will. I always do. I see too much of him recently. Um, just kidding. I can never have enough, David. Um, but one of the things that we talk about, you, you know, you've built this practice and it's grown and grown. Um, I'm very intrigued by how the the lion's share of your work as an architect stays in the arena of hospitality. So it's a two part question: is one, how do you define hospitality, and then what's kind of what's keeping you? What what's what's kept you in this world of our of our hospitality and design within hospitality, and you and won't let you go, or you won't let yourself go. Which one is it? Well, I guess a, a two-part question. I'll take the first one first. Um, you know, how do I define hospitality personally? You know, I think hospitality is, um, you know, can be measured by the degree to which you're deviating from the norm, or deviating from the expected, or deviating from your day-to-day -day life. Um, you know, so when you're enjoying um, hospitality in the form of whether it's a vacation or, or a staycation or uh, leisure, uh, however it may be defined, I think it's, um, it's, it's going to a place and experiencing the place um, and experiencing it in a way that you've got a story to tell. You've got some memories that you've made, you've done some things that you may not have done before, seen some things, eaten some things, met some people. Um, and you came home and told people about it. And I think that is the measure of a great hospitality experience. And I think your second part of the question was, you know, how, maybe how did I get into it and how long have I been doing it? I, I, I didn't start in hospitality. I, I had a, a summer internship in college at an architecture firm, as most architecture students do. And I ended up working, ended up working on a prison. Um, and, you know, um, I kind of decided at that point that that was probably not um, the ideal building type for me. And I, you know, didn't even really understand that much about being able to choose, you know, building types or a path in, in architecture. But when I decided that maybe I should apply to, to, to firms that actually did fun stuff, um, I, uh, I, I got a job with a, a company called Hill Glazier Architects in, uh, in 1990, just around the time I graduated from Cal Poly. And they specialized in hospitality, and I had done my senior thesis at Cal Poly on hospitality, and so this was something that was was interesting to me, and travel was interesting to me, and going to interesting places was was interesting. So that's kind of how I got into it, and I I never turned back. And there's many tangential aspects of hospitality, whether it be restaurants or clubhouses or spas or you know even retail. But you know, as a as a building type, I think hospitality is, um, I mean, for me, the 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 best. I'm also curious as an for you as an architect and working on all the different types of projects that you work on from that you just mentioned from clubhouses to hotels to you name it. Um, are you if you're ever working on a a, a really big mixed use? property and there may be elements 
of design that you're not working on in those in that larger mixed use are you brought in to discuss what how how this would translate from a from a hospitality perspective um let me make sure i understand that question um Exactly. Well, we, we do work on lots of mixed use projects, you know, some mm-hmm. of the most notable may be, you know, Santana Row, um, you know, the Miami Design District. Um, and, you know, all those projects have such a varying um, components to them. Most of our mixed use projects are retail driven um, mm-hmm. with a hospitality component and, and, and most often a residential component. And we, you know, we specialize in, um, you know, in the hospitality and the residential, but if there are pieces and parts that um, are not within our bailiwick or we're not experts, we welcome, you know, others to participate. And I think that's another thing about the industry is that we, you know, we work on so many projects and big projects all over the place that it's very seldom that we're designing the project ourselves. I mean, we're not just, you know, locking ourselves in a room and, you know, coming up with the idea, you know, in a silo. Um, and then um, it gets built like that. I mean, there's so many influences and so many great partners, whether it be landscape architects or chair, de- chair designers or restaurant designers or office designers that supplement all that we do. Right. And then when you're when you're kicking off those projects where you might not be working on one area of it and someone else may be, um, are you... Do you guys compare notes as far as what, how hospitality and what that lens is for each of those projects, or do you kind of stay siloed in your part of the, of the project? Is there basically, I'm trying to get into, is there like cross collaboration and where you design for hospitality all the time for people who don't, what kind of tidbits or best practices or experiences can you share with them? Yeah, I think a couple specific projects come to mind. We're doing a very large project called Ravana, or we call it Innovation Station. It's, um, I don't know, between four and six million square feet um, in Washington, D.C. And it's got all kinds of components to it. And we were paired with another architect uh, called Michael Shu in Dallas. And architects sometimes don't um, like the the forced marriage. Um, but we keep a very open mind and we think of ourselves as collaborators and they are amazing. I mean, they were experts at the guest experience relating most, um, you know, to retail um, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're experts at the guest experience related to hospitality. And so, you know, we defined kind of common values, a common language, um, you know, using image boards and, you know, word clouds and things. So that made sure that we were reading from the same hymnal, you know, the same sheet of music, um, and then they're left to interpret the ground plane, perhaps on that project, the the way that they saw fit. And then we, you know, focused a little bit more on the hospitality. And the other is a project called The Link in Dallas that's got, you know, office, uh, retail, hospitality. And we are but one of many uh, architects, and we're focused on um, both an office building and a hospitality project. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we think about the arrival experience, the first impression, the last impression, uh, views, um, you know, where the various hospitality elements are located, whether it's, you know, meeting spaces with, with gray views, rooftop bars, rooftop restaurants, um, you know, so, you know, we, we, we bring our, our, our unique hospitality lens to the project, but we're very curious about, you know, the lenses of others. And we do believe that, you know, you know, the, the whole is, is bigger than the sum of the parts and the collaborative aspect of this and the synergies between uses and the synergies between firms, you know, could make better projects. And I think that's a really good segue into, you know, it's one of the topics that I've been having with people is, you know, how hard it is to find quote unquote, good people for what they're doing. Right. And, so in the hospitality world, and whether it's on the design side, operation or operation side, um, there's this idea of this that's inherent in hospitality from collaboration, empathy, listening, putting others first, or really getting into the shoes of what the other, of what all the other stakeholders want, and, and making sure that they have a great journey. When you're recruiting and building your teams, how do you discern whether how those newcomers to your to your company would excel at hospitality do you have like a filter for how you select 
how you find and then how you select your team or teams? Well, I, I spent a lot of time on that topic. I think the, um, you know, coming to SB from my prior firm, um, I had a chance to really build a um, you know, professional environment where I, I wanted people to be able to thrive personally and professionally and, you know, test to the theory that people who are happy um, at work and are engaged and are passionate about the kind of work that they're doing are doing better work. Um, and, you know, that was a theory. And I think that the jury is in. And I think that we have, you know, a very, very high level of morale and a very, very strong culture. And we spend a lot of time talking about what hospitality means, you know, my definition and, and, and the definition of others. We um, have designed our own office to feel like a hospitality space. And we treat each other and we treat ourselves in a manner that we feel is consistent with the projects that we're working on. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we have, um, you know, an in-house yoga instructor who will come in and do yoga and we can do that together to build bonds. Um, you know, we take um, every other Friday and we have a wind down where we're all, you know, you know, honing our presentation skills, you know, and talking about things that we've designed or things that we've seen that we feel are relevant and important. So we spend a lot of time um, um you know, refining and educating our staff and really trying to inspire them. And some people like that um, and other people's don't, other people don't. So, um, you know, we, we um, you know, we, we look for people who are curious. We look for people who are, are active and uh, looking at the world through a very broad lens. Um, we look for people who have experienced places uh, and things that they might be able to bring to the projects. Um, mm. we're sitting around kind of thinking about a project and we're saying, oh, have you been over here? Have you been to this project? Have you been to that place? And to the extent we can, we can all, you know, offer our, um, personal experiences and put those into this great stew of uh, ideas. And then out of that comes, uh, an original idea that's infused by, uh, the passions of our team. Um, we think that's a, that's a really potent, um, a, a potent composition. And then as you grow and work on more and more projects, you need more and more people. And how do you attract those like-minded people who are curious, who are active, who have a really broad lens? Like, is, is there a way that you find them or attract them? Yeah. Like how, yeah. How, I, I hear those are great practices. And, and you said a wine, wine down or wind well, wine yeah so we have a little wine you know we oh great projects we have people zoom in we have guest speakers um you know it's a vibrant time to to share that's evolved over the years but you know how do we find these people it's tough man we get you know it's it's a it's a tight market uh just last week we sent uh two of our young architects down to um the university of arizona and they went to a career fair and they were there representing us and you know our passion and our personality, and hopefully attracting like-minded like-minded people who want to join the firm. And we we do these, we do these career fairs. We have interns from universities because we feel that they are bringing new ideas to us as much as we're sharing ideas with them. Um, you know we have recruiters who are working on our behalf. But I think the most important thing that we do is we we ask our staff who are most happy here to reach back to you know, their, their academic days, which might be longer for some of us than others, <laughs> uh, or their past jobs, and mm -hmm. or they're just, you know, the, socially they're out hanging out with other architects um, and, and help us recruit. And, and we actually pay them for that. We have, a, wow. we have a, a reward system, which is you know, not as much as we pay recruiters because that's very, very expensive, but we would much rather pay our staff to help us recruit because they know us better than any recruiter ever will. And mm -hmm. that's been a really great thing. And if you look at all the people who work for SB, uh, there's a significant amount of them that, that, that came to us through friends who worked here. And that's all, they're already pre-qualified if, they, you know, if they're liked by people that we like as employees. It's interesting you say that, and I call that um, like a cultural filter, if you will, yeah. in the sense that I must place, I don't know, a score of people every year in jobs, connecting them. 
it's not what I do, but I enjoy it. And mostly what I enjoy is I get to know that person that's, that's looking for a job. And then I know the people who are looking to hire and I can say, oh, you know what? They're going to be a really good fit. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And I also, I don't know. I think every, a lot of companies talk about this in in theory, but I don't think really do it in practice, but it really resonated with me in basically hearing you say, you guys can be, are your best recruiters because you know who you're, who you're looking for and you know, who's going to enjoy themselves at yoga or that wine or the wind down where you're, where you're practicing your presentations and having speakers come in. Yeah. Just today, I just, just this morning, I got an email from one of our young architects who's organizing, you know, an unofficial ski trip and we're doing, you know, tours of, you know, construction sites. And so there's a lot of things that we do to engage the staff and keep them here because it's one thing, it's one thing to recruit them. It's another thing to uh, retain them. Um, yeah. When I get involved in these interviews, you know, I don't, I don't really want to look at people's drawings and all that kind of, I want to, I want to understand who they are as a person. And if it's a, if it's not a cultural fit, I don't need to look at the drawings. Um, you know what I'm saying? So that's, that kind of, for me, is that if, if I can get along and have a conversation, you know, with this person, a dialogue with this person, then, you know, then, you know, let's go to the next level. But if we can't get past that, then there's no point. And I remember when Don Sandy interviewed me um, 22 years ago to come from Hill Glacier to what was then Sandy Babcock, we, I remember this vividly, we, I walked into the Ritz-Carlton for breakfast with, with Don Sandy. And I had this giant bag of all my drawings and everything. I was ready to just show them all the drawings. And I never got, the, I never, I never took a single drawing out. He, he didn't want to, he didn't want to see the drawings. He goes, look, if you're here, you, you, you must know how to do the work. Um, mm -hmm. What I want to understand is like who you are as a person. And that meant, that meant a lot to me. And we had a great conversation and became, you know, great friends and traveled the world together. And, and um, you know, it all, it all worked out. Um, I'm curious, what's the current headcount of, of your team? Like how many people are currently working at SB? Uh, 118. Wow. Um, 118. And, you know, for a long time, San Francisco and Miami were our two offices and San Francisco has always been our headquarters and still is. Um, but right now we're about 47 in San Francisco and about the same in Miami. And then we've recently opened a Dallas office and a London office, and we're hovering around 10 or so at each of those offices. And then we opened an office in uh, Medellin, Colombia. Um, wow. And then we have a lot of people working remotely, which is sort of an outgrowth of COVID. So we've got a concentration of maybe 10 people in Orange County, a couple in Seattle, one in New York, um, you know, one in Vietnam. And so, but office-wide, offices, we have five offices, uh, but 118 people working for us globally. Wow. And then for you, as the, as the head of the company and like the visionary leader, if you will, um, what are the practices that you do to like, to keep in touch with everyone or to, to, to make the, the, that diaspora of growth kind of feel more centered and connected. Yeah, that's a, that's a, the last thing we want is people to feel, you know, like they're satellites or the disenfranchised or they're not part of the mothership. And so um, we do a whole bunch of things. Um, but, you know, one of the biggest, I think was, oh, maybe 10 years ago when, you know, we were growing and I, I felt very important that we expand our ownership base. Right. I mean, at that time, there was maybe myself and a couple others that were owners of SB Architects, but I, I saw the need to uh, expand that. And so, um, you know, up to very recently, we had 14 owners uh, and I own more than anyone. But, you know, we, we continued to sell portions of the firm and shares to bring um, uh, a broader base to our leadership. And then those people those associate principals and vice presidents and owners were um, charged with carrying this torch of, of unification, if you will. And so it wasn't just, you know, vested solely in myself and, you know, my senior partners. Now that was passed to um, the junior partners and associate principals. And so I, de I deal most of the time with that, with that group, with that leadership group. And then they deal 
um, with the, the, the rest of the staff and the teams and the studios. And so, but we, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, building teams and, you know, having team meetings and trying to, you know, get people back into the office. That's been a, a big challenge for us because with, you know, remote working, um, remote working can work, but remote onboarding is very difficult. Bringing in new staff and, you know, infusing them with the culture, getting them uh, acclimatized with, you know, who we are and how we work. Um, there really is no substitute for, you know, being in the office and sitting down face to face and, you know, drawing together. I totally agree. Um, and it's, I feel like we're still in this interstitial moment where we're all trying to like figure out this marketplace of what work looks like from, for the future. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I think there's a lot of silver linings that have come out. Um, I really love the hearing about the, the shared equity because it really, it can really help everyone feel more vested for sure. Right. And, and not just feel, but actually be and have a, have a, a role in the success of, of the company, which is, is really incredible. When did you kind of think about that? When did you start introducing that on your journey? I think it was about 13 years ago. And, you know, and, and, and one of the reasons that I left my prior firm, um, albeit I was a partner, uh, I didn't see that they were going to get to the point of expanding, you know, that leadership to the point where, you know, the people that were, you know, there, there wasn't a, a logical growth path um, there. Um, and I feared here that if we didn't have a logical growth path, then people would seek that growth, that growth elsewhere. And we had invested so much time and energy into building this team that I felt that the only path you know, to retain these people and to continue to, you know, inspire them and, you know, keep them, you know, financially and professionally and personally fulfilled was to sell them part of the company, um, mm. which we did. And, you know, some people would look at me and go, you're an idiot. Like you own like so much of this company. Why would you, why would you divide up the pie? Um, and my answer to that was because the pie is going to get bigger and, mm. you know, I'm happy to cut it up into smaller pieces um, but because I, I think the pie is going to get bigger as a result of that. People are going to stay longer. They're going to feel more committed. They're going to behave uh, like owners, um, which is a slight uptick from your behavior as an employee. Yeah. And so much of that behaving like owners or having that, that, kind, that vested interest has so much to do, I think, with hospitality as well, because when you're really vested in your team and the larger mission, truly, like from your heart, um, I feel like it's that it's that much easier to both give and receive hospitality or empathy or or whatever you want to call it, so that we're just all kind of in tune to the same frequency uh, moving forward. And the, I totally agree; the pie absolutely will get bigger. Um, as you know, looking back on your career when you were starting it, you went to San Luis Obispo, correct? Yeah. Did you start off as architecture there or did you? I, I did. Yeah. I, I, I kind of was all architecture all the time since like, you know, junior high school. So there was, okay. no, there was no question that that's what I was going to do. So yeah, I went to Cal Poly and that was, that was my focus and late in the game um, became interested in, you know, in the hospitality aspect of architecture. And if you were, Back in in at San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly, there thinking about where you are now with your one, two, three, four, five, six offices, a hundred and eighteen people spread out. Like, could you have imagined the journey that you've been on back then? Not, not really. No, I mean, I, I was just <laughs> hoping to get a job out of college, honestly, um, and and that was itself kind of tough, and you know, it didn't pay well, and you know, it was a long slog. Um, but somewhere in there, I mean, I always had a bit of an arch uh, an entrepreneurial idea about things. Like I I had my own business doing stuff in high school, and then I started a business in college and, and, you know, I did a bunch of like freelance work. And so I, I kind of imagined that I may be able to, um, uh, you know, do something slightly different than sort of the average career path. And, you know, fortunately I was around people who gave me those chances and, um, 
you know, I was oftentimes maybe that squeaky wheel asking for those chances. Um, and, you know, it caused me to be maybe a little bit more of a self-advocate um, that than uh, I otherwise would have been. But I think that, you know, you gotta, you gotta identify where you want to go and maybe, you know, make your own path to get there. Mm -hmm. And when you were working at your previous firm and you decided actually, at, and actually forget the, at the last firm, because it could have really happened anywhere. When you really took, I, I, I heard about the, or thank you for sharing about the, the entrepreneurial running experiences in high school or college. But when you were out there working and being the squeaky wheel and maybe it's not working for you, bring us all back to that moment where you had that, you took that first entrepreneurial step well into your career path. Like what was, what was holding you back? And then what pushed you forward to take the step? Yeah, I think when I was, when I was made a, um, a partner at Hill Glacier, I was, um, I don't know, I think it was 30 or something like that, which was, um, you know, a big deal uh, for me at the time. Um, but I never really felt like a partner. I, I kind of felt, I, I kind of felt like I was still an employee, albeit I, I had some ownership. Um, and the difference between um, feeling like an employee and feeling like a partner was to be able to affect uh, in a positive way, the culture of, of the office um, and to do all the things um, and have the latitude and the freedom to do all the things uh, that I was able to do at Sandy Babcock and SB Architects that I wasn't able to do there. And I just saw that that, that I was never going to be able to get there there. And so I, you know, took a leap of faith. And again, people said, Dude, you're a partner at Hill Glazier. What are you doing? And I'm like, well, it's just, I think I could do something more. Um, and I had to go backwards before I went forwards. I, you know, I sold my shares and I became an employee again uh, at Sandy Babcock. And they hired me as an employee uh, with the hope that I might be able to deliver on all the things I said I could do. And um, and then they sold me some shares um, and they gave me more latitude. And I was able to bring some people from um, prior relationships and win some work um, and do some things that I was like, wow, you know, we're, we're kind of we're kind of running the place now. And uh, it felt very liberating. Um, and it felt um, very gratifying to, you know, see change being made and see people being happy and inspired and allowed to, you know, do things um, differently and to think on their own rather than be under the thumb of others. And so I I, I welcomed those ideas. I, I would never, you know, say, well, that's a bad idea because it's not mine. If it's a good idea and it came from the UPS guy who came in to drop off a package, whatever. I mean, we're, 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 we're looking for good ideas. And if you've got some thoughts, then throw them out there and there's no bad ideas. Um, and so, you know, we, we really kind of opened it up to a, um, uh, you know, a, a highly communicative, highly collaborative group. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of SB Architects is that we, you know, we think of ourselves that way. And if you go back to some of your opening statements about David Kennedy, you know, I met David Kennedy at a conference probably 20 years ago. Um, and a lot of people burn through these conferences and, you know, uh, shake a lot of hands and, but I don't really make a lot of relationships. And I think, you know, making those relationships, whether with someone who is going to benefit you personally or professionally, it's not really the objective. Like you're just making relationships with people that you like, and then the work will come and, you know, you, you, you can, um, you can leverage that into, in, into bigger things. I totally agree. And that completely uh, resonates with me. Um, so earlier you mentioned a couple of projects. I know uh, this innovation station, I think it was called, you said it's how many million square feet? It started off at nine. It's smaller now, but it's big. I mean, it's big. huge. So would that be like, if you were to create a spectrum of types of projects you work on, would that be on the larger end of yeah. the spectrum? Yeah, that's big, big, big. Okay. Big and then what's, what's like a, the, on the other side of the spectrum, what's a really, a small, a smaller project that you got, you would find you and your team working on? You know, I just did, I just asked my staff myself, and then I asked somebody to help me answer the question. I said, you know, how many projects do we have? Um, under construction right now, like how many? Mm -hmm. 
And then, um, you know, how many hotel rooms are under construction and how, how many hotel rooms per project. And I, you know, I love like Excel and charts and stuff. Um, and so I was able to look at like really big projects and really small projects. But, uh, but the answer to that question happens to be 20 projects. And I think it's 1500 hotel rooms and 1700 residential units that are actually under construction right now. Um, mm -hmm. But small projects for us are, I mean, I got a call to add four guest rooms at the farmhouse in, 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 in Sonoma. And we took it because um, it's a cool project and we thought we could really make a difference. And we ended up getting them nine guest rooms and a spa and, you know, did some things that they didn't think we could do. Um, and so that's a small project for us. Um, we're talking about a, you know, a small, some small glamping projects in Tahoe and other places. And, you know, those are small. Um, 50 room hotel is, is on the small side. Um, I think the average size hotel project that we do is maybe 175 rooms. Um, okay. which means that we do some at 500 and 600 and some at four and eight and 20. Um, yeah. but we don't do lots of 3000 room hotels or stuff like that. Those are, those well, are a bit big for us. So the reason why I was asking, cause like that innovation station sounds ginormous, Yeah. but if you were to take that innovation station on one side of the spectrum and then that farmhouse in, in Sonoma on the other side, and I were to ask you, what kind of a thread could you weave between those two very different types of projects that would attract you to both of them with your with your hospitality hat on? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a great uh, question and a, and a very specific answer. The, the the innovation station project, you know, early in that dialogue with that client was a great client, by the way, uh, Timberline. Um, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to build another um Reston, if you will. Um, nothing bad, nothing's wrong with the Reston project in Virginia, but it's, you know, it's a large project that, you know, brick and stucco and stuff like that. And so, you know, we really wanted to create something um that was because it was further away from Washington, DC, getting out of the urban core, we came up, we I didn't come up with this term, one of our clients came up with the term called um bucolic urbanism. Um, and so that was a blend between, you know, the city and the country. Um, you know, lots of open space, lots of walkability, lots of lots of things that um, are more akin to the rural environment than the urban environment. But it's a very urban project. It's a very dense project. But how can we bring that that bucolic kind of sensibility to it? And that was attractive to me. Like, wow, we're gonna we're not gonna do just another giant nine million square foot project. We're gonna do it in a way that brings this kind of experiential um, uh, guest experience. That was a really big part of the initial dialogue of that project and it, it informed the way that we were planning it and where the density was and where, where it was very low density and where it was, you know, very, um, you know, hilly and maintaining some of the natural uh, features of the, the site, whether it be rocks or, or uh, stones or valleys or whatever. It wasn't just let's flatten it and let's put a bunch of tall buildings. I mean, it was not that. And it was the same, the, the, it's the same answer for the farmhouse inn, which is, you know, in Sonoma and they've got a very strong sense of Sonoma and a, a very strong sense of themselves. And they wanted us to enhance that. And so, you know, one of the first things I did when I went to the site, when they told me that we want to add four rooms and I said, you know, you could have so many more rooms if you just get rid of all this asphalt, you've got this asphalt road that goes right through this project it's you know what if you tore it all out oh we can't do that and you know so we figured out how to tear it all out and we replaced it with decomposed granite and gardens and you know all the things that people imagine in Sonoma and so I guess in both projects we were I was excited about them because we could make a difference we could do something that other people um, weren't doing and something that would be very very attractive to the market because it was such a deviation from the norm. Yeah. And that's interesting because obviously, you know, on the larger size of the larger side project, the innovation station, you know, that's a huge one. The con I'm sure it's a great contract, but you're also kind of pushing the envelope of this and, and, and kind of inventing this idea of bucolic urbanism. I never heard that before, but um, yeah. So, but then on the other side, you know, on the micro side, 
again, you're really looking at it for how you can make a a big difference on a, on such a smaller personal scale. And I guess both of them are involving that, like, what's the individual experience walking through, which I guess is true for any project. But I'm just trying to see like what what would be the most attractive part from the hospitality perspective, and Well, I don't know. You, I love you know what's interesting yeah. about you know what's interesting about the the question, and I talk about this often, is that you know there there are projects where we're, we're asked to like you know which one of these mountaintops do you think the project should go on, right? It's that that it's at that level of of macro, right? It's several thousand acres, and you know we're deciding where the project is going to go on the several thousand acres. And then there's projects that are very, very small, and we're kind of debating whether or not the Phillips head screw should be orthogonal or should be diagonal. You know, right. and, and so and to be asked as a professional to have that range of um, you know understanding or opinions about or experience with those things is pretty pretty broad, and it's mm. and it's super fun, and there's not that many professions that have that that breadth of, of experience where one day you're having a conversation about this macro, 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 and the next day you're having a conversation about micro, micro, micro. Yeah. yeah. Because most, most principals at firms that I speak to, you know, they have their lane, they stay in their lane. Okay. So it could be hospitality, but then it could be, you know, more specifically a 220 room guest room or, Hey, we are in the select service or full service or luxury. Um, but I love the the fact that, you know, from the super micro to the uber macro, yeah. you're finding that thread th throughout. Um, yeah, it's a, just a different lens. I mean, I was just, I just thought of this because I'm looking at a telescope over here, but if you put a lens in the telescope and, you know, and, and your objective is to see like the greatness of the, like how broad the universe is, like that's one lens. If you put another lens in and you're looking at like those little craters on the moon. Um, and so, and they're all interesting and they're all, they're all architecture. Um, but it's just a different lens that you're looking at it through. And so some days you're talking about, gosh, you know, how are we going to get that tub, you know, and to, to, to have a view and how's that going to be configured, you know, within the bathroom and, you know, and then, you know, the next day is like, you know, should it be four hotels or eight hotels? Um, mm. so it, it's, 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 it's daunting in, in a way, but it's, um, you know, it's very exciting. It's very exciting yeah. to, to have that kind of uh, opportunity to look at the world of hospitality through so many different lenses. Yeah. And I think ultimately, at least for me, and I know our listeners and you, it's that idea of hospitality that is so exciting, right? It's that experience, like going back to what you said in the beginning, it's delivering on something above what our everyday expectations are, right? Or way above. Um, so looking at your past and now kind of the present of where you are with you at the helm of SB and looking forward, what's exciting you most about what you see out there in your crystal ball? Well, you know, I, I think that the world is moving, you know, to a new definition of luxury. Uh, I think, you know, the luxury that we all, you know, maybe grew up with or, or, or imagined to be the pinnacle of luxury, whether it be, you know, crown moldings or, you know, marble on top of marble and, you know, that luxury in, in that sense, um, I think is, is, is just, but, but one definition of luxury, but I think the new definition is to have a bespoke experience. Um, and you don't care whether you've got crown moldings and you don't care whether you, you know, all, all those, all those trappings of luxury, the expense, the expensiveness of it, the, uh, the, the the quantification of it, I suppose, we're we're now interested in the in the qual the quality of it. It's a qualitative luxury rather than a, a quantitative luxury, and I think that gives us so much more um, latitude because all those rules of thumb and the the you know the rules um, have almost been thrown away, right? The rule book totally. has almost been thrown away, and you know I was just talking to a person I was thinking about hiring, and and, and the guy was like, you know what? Don't really know that much about hospitality and i'm like perfect you're hired um <laughs> because you know we, what we don't want is to say like you know let's do hospitality like we've always done it let's do hospitality like we did it in the 90s or the you know the early 2000s you know let's let's uh, let's forget about all that Let, let's start over again 
and just talk about how can we make the greatest guest experience and let's design the architecture around that. I love it. And I, I, this comes up a lot as well in these conversations where it's this idea of rookie smarts, right? Where, okay, you're new to something, you may not have experience in it, and that's okay because you're bringing a fresh new perspective that will help push us forward in whatever this new idea of luxury may be or hospitality or what or whatever um, new initiatives you you guys might be working on at SB. Um, so you said earlier that you were all architecture from the time you were in middle school. Mm-hmm. How did you know that? You know, I, I, I always like to draw um, and I was like to build stuff. And when I was little in elementary school, my mom would, would, would drive around to these construction sites with us and we would take all this construction. I mean, not steal it, but like we'd take up, maybe we stole some stuff, but um, we bring all this material home, wood and all that. And we build these like, you know, crazy forts and then, you know, we draw stuff and, uh, you know, so the combination between drawing things and then, you know, having a, a, a tangible result of a day's work. It's like I built that thing. And so that's that was very satisfying to me. And then you combine, um, you know, you combine that with a personal interaction and it just seemed like a, um, you know, a really great, a really great career um in architecture like you know drawing things and ultimately building things um you know working together it seemed it it just suited me wow and then thinking about you know the scott i'm speaking to right now and then the middle school scott if if you were to appear in front of your middle school self what advice would you have for yourself i would say um take, take risks. Um, and, you know, get comfortable with the notion that, uh, you're not ready for this yet because you probably never are going to be ready for anything. Um, and if you're waiting for that perfect moment when you're finally ready, um, I think life's going to pass you by and you just got to jump in and say, you know what, I'll do it. I'm going to, I'm going to take that on. I might fail. Um, but I'm going to do it. And if I do fail, I will have learned something, um, through that. And so, you know, volunteering to, you know, take on a task that was well above my ability or, you know, start a company, not knowing anything about starting a company, um, you know, lots of failures. Um, but you know, it's an accelerant to growth, I I think. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I signed up for all kinds of stuff that like had no business signing up for. Um, but then I did it and I came back and I'm like, wow, you know, that was, that was, that was pretty brutal. Um, but I'm better, I'm better equipped now than before. And, you know, if you wait until you're ready, you know, whether it's to get married or have kids or start a company or quit a job or, I mean, be financially independent. I mean, you just, you're never ready. Mm-hmm. You just gotta do it. Yeah. I, I believe inertia is the mind killer and, uh, you gotta break through that. So I, I totally agree. I heard an interesting question the other day. I don't know where I heard it, but you know, everyone always, or you always hear this question, or at least I do. Hey, if you, if, if you could fail, if you, what would you try doing if you knew you couldn't fail? That was the question, right? And you hear that a lot, right? What would you, what would you do? But I heard it posed a different way. Um, and I'll ask you is what would you do knowing that you would fail? If you could try anything new, what would you do knowing that you would fail at it or could fail at it? Mm, what would I do if I knew if I knew I would fail? Yeah. Um, man, that is a tough one. Um, uh, I mean, right now in my career, I suppose I uh right now I would uh I would, I would actually do less. Um, I mean, I kind of want to do less. I've been kind of burning it, um, you know, the candle at both ends for 30 years or so. Uh, and I, and I would do less, but I've got this kind of feeling that I might not be very good at that. Um, Mm. but again, based on my earlier comments, maybe I should just try it, see what happens. And I think, um, and, and I, 
I said, I don't think I, I don't think I would fail at that. I, I think I could keep myself very interested and in, in, in very busy. And the other thing is that all those people that, um, you know, we empowered um, so many years ago and, you know, that were way over their heads, perhaps at the time. And that was a risk for them to, to accept the challenge to be an owner of an architecture firm. Um, you know, 10 years later, those people um, are amazing. And so they don't actually need me to tell them what to do at this point mm -hmm. in, in, in the trajectory of the firm, right? We have evolved beyond, you know, Scott's going to tell everybody what to do. Um, these people have, have, you know, been through the trenches with me and on their own, and they might not know it yet, although I think it's becoming apparent to them that they, um, they know how to do it and they're mm -hmm. not going to fail. Yeah. Well, and also going back to failure, I, I read this on a t-shirt once and it really resonated with me is, you know, failure is really just unfinished learning. And uh, I think we can all learn from that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also it's, it's inspiring to hear, you know, the team that you've assembled and the shared ownership or, or creating or enabling that ownership mindset to grow. Um I think that that will also enable you to try to fail at doing less, right? Because you've created, in a way, uh, a grand alignment where everyone's kind of rowing in the same direction. Yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah. envious. Yeah, that's very true. And as I think more and more about doing less and less, um, I do take comfort in this, um, you know, this this network of, um, network's not the right word, but this this broadened um, base of SB architects um, mm. that you know I used to go to the meetings and I used to do all the talking and all the presenting right that's how it once worked and now I find myself consciously you know let's go to the meeting and I'm going to say about five percent and you're going to say about ninety five percent and mm. that's working and I'm um, amazed actually um, at how far. All these folks have come and how they found their voice and their confidence and you know their abilities in the same way that i did uh perhaps i did it with not quite as much um support at the time mm -hmm. so i'm happy to provide the support to these um to these young architects um yeah. and see them grow perhaps faster and further uh than i was able to grow that's awesome yeah support mentor uh, mentorship um growing leaders. I think it's something that we all can benefit from and learn from. Um, and thank you for sharing. Um, if people wanted to learn more about you, Scott, or SB, like what's the best way for them to take that first step and break their inertia? Well, re reach out for sure. I mean, it's like, don't sit there and go, yeah, maybe I should reach out to that guy and then don't do it. I mean, just do it. And uh, the easiest avenue to to get to me, I think, it, you know, for this particular topic would be through LinkedIn. Um, and many people do. You know, I've got high school students who are like, you know, kids or friends of mine. Oh, my kid wants to be an architect. I'm like, OK, that's great. Your kid should call me. Um, but you don't call me and arrange a meeting with your kid, you know. So and, and they do. And so I've had, you know, college students and high school students and um, you know, coming into the office and, you know, as much as they might want to talk to me, I oftentimes will, you know, speak to them for a while, but then talk to someone who is, has more recently been in, in architecture school, you know, not 30 years ago, but maybe three years ago. Um, and it's been great. It's been super fun. And we're really proud of our, our culture and our office and having, you know, high school students or college students into our office to, to see how excited they are to see, wow, this is like the real world. I mean, I've been in, in, you know, classrooms and talking about what architecture may look like and feel like, but wow, now I'm in an office and look at how fun and exciting and energetic it is. And, and, you know, to see people really complete that idea, that thought about wanting to be an architect. Yeah. And, and I bet it also resonates with you because you remember when you were that and you had yeah. that excitement, yeah. right? No, when I was, so when I was uh, in high school, you know, in, in wanted to be an architect, I said, God, I really want to go and like work for an architect. So I got the, back when there was these things called yellow pages, I got this, like the yellow pages, and I, I called all the architects in my, my town, lived in San Mateo. I call these architects and I'm like, yeah, hey, my name's Scott. I'm at, like a junior in high school and I want to come and, uh, I can just come and work for free just to kind of just get it, see it. And people are like, no, no, no. And so this one company said, um, 
yeah, that'd be great. You know, we're just changing offices and you can come in and help, but we want to, you know, we'll actually, we'll pay you. I'm like, oh, oh great, even better. And so I, I get there and, you know, I'm painting things and whatever, but eventually I kind of got in there and I got to draw, draw something, something and I got the letters and things and uh, it was great. And I, and I want to be able to provide, you know, that kind of um, opportunity for, for young people to, you know, see it. And maybe they won't like it. And maybe that's the best thing. They'll come in and be like, you know what? I don't want to be an architect. Oh, great. Then just don't waste your time anymore. Go, you know, go to med school. Yeah. But there's no point in going to like four or five years of architecture school only to then find out that you actually hate the profession. So, so like, totally. or maybe they want to go design oil rigs or something like that. Something yeah, or or like or refineries, some yeah. crazy engineering degree. But yeah, I also find that sometimes experience of things you don't want to do have a more profound impact than experiencing what you enjoy doing because it like it makes you take that right turn like oh wow let's get away from that and see what this new endeavor may be um that's the same that's the same interaction that oftentimes we'll have with our clients where you know we say to them look um it's okay to not like it um because if you don't like it and you tell us that you don't like it at least we we know that and we've got thick skin. I mean, having been in architecture school and architecture for so long, I mean, not everyone likes what you do. And it's a very iterative process. But to find out what clients don't like or what brands don't like or what communities don't want, um, it makes the job of finding out what they do want that much easier. So, you know, it's a pro almost a process of elimination. I completely agree. And again, that's just great screening. But um. Scott, I wanted to just say thank you for your time. I mean, I've enjoyed this conversation so much and I know our listeners will all benefit from it. So just, I want to express my heartfelt gratitude and appreciation and thank you. Thank you very well. It was enjoyable. It was very fun that I don't get a chance to talk about these things very often. So it was fun to, um, to share those with you. great questions. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and I don't, I'd be remiss without thanking our listeners. Hey, everybody. Um, without you guys, this wouldn't be going and we keep growing every single week and it's very humbling, but it must mean we have great guests like Scott and so many others on that you all want to learn from. So if this changed your mind on or made you think differently about how to define hospitality or create hospitality or design, please pass it along to a friend. Um, it's all word of mouth. So thank you everyone. And we'll see you next time. <music>